Welcome back to Everything is Public Health and another installment of our series on important public health figures of history. I'm MJ. And I'm Cass. The name is still a work in progress, but we'll figure it out eventually. We don't know how long. I still I'm leaning towards like public health pioneers, maybe. Okay. For that, you know, PHP kind of. Yeah, alliteration. Almost alliterative. Almost alliteration. Yeah, um, public health, the fact that it has pub, like a really plosive sound and then a really soft health sound together really doesn't it's hard to name things but anyway well that's why like pioneers also is a little bit of an aggressive sound but you know what for today we're gonna call our episode public health pioneers (laughs) it may permanently be a work in progress to be honest but we are here today to talk about another pioneering public health figure that we think more people should know about yay before i continue i realize that these figures that we cover aren't super obscure as in i don't do months of deep investigative journalism to uncover like a hidden story these are people well known in the field like they have wikipedia entries they have like biographies and autobiographies so they're not they're not like the super obscure type that we're digging out from like the closets of history because i don't have that time to do deep investigative journalism but so i'm aware yes these are very well-known figures but i think there's a difference between being well known on paper and being well known like in general like to the public so that's why we're doing this yeah i think it's also Just like the purpose of the podcast is to get people to think about how everything is public health. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, there are a lot of people who contributed to the growth of the field and the things we think about or know or encourage people to do are based on the work of folks. But generally, people might not know who those people are. Yeah. So one of the things we are trying to do in the series is focus on groups that have potentially been historically underrepresented and or underrecognized. History already gives men, uh, particularly white men, a lot of visibility and credit, sometimes unduly giving them credit for things that they (laughs) might not have actually earned. But we want to make sure that we are shining some light on others and making sure that we're lifting up the whole range of folks who are contributing to public health. Yes, indeed. It has happened uh, more than dozens of times that a work of a particularly a woman or a, a person of color was not recognized and instead given to their quote-unquote collaborators. That word is used very loosely. But anyway, today's figure is Dr. Alice Hamilton. Cass, have you heard of her? I have not, but as we have talked about numerous times, I am embarrassingly bad with names. And so it is entirely likely that I know who this lovely woman is. I just don't know her name. We will see how many paragraphs I get to before you're like, aha, (laughs) I know who this person is. But anyway, here we go. Obviously, you have to do the, uh, not boring, but you have to do the standard biography part first. Biographical information. Dr. Alice Hamilton was born on February 27th, 18... 69 in New York City, but she was raised in Fort Wayne, Indiana, no idea where that is, in a big family. She was born into a relatively privileged family, uh, as reflected by the fact that she, as a woman, got education in the 1800s. So her family is very well established, very well um, uh, funded, for lack of a better word. Her family was well funded by what? <laughs> that was a weird... Well funded, yes. By by their own capital, you know? <laughs> they had wealth. They had wealth, yes. And I feel like this is already a point of commentary in that it really, back in those times, like it really does take a lot of privilege for a woman to get education. Like this in the rest of her career was only made possible because she was born in privilege. And I, I'm not sure if you want to comment on that, but I think this is unfortunately the the case like if you didn't have 
a privileged background and you were a woman back in the 1800s, you probably couldn't get anywhere. And sometimes you weren't even taught to read. Anyway, so that, that was her upbringing. There was a family of four sisters. She was the second oldest. They had one younger brother. None of the four sisters married, which for some reason I find very inspiring. And I don't know why. I can't really put my finger on it. I mean, if you think about that time, and I think this goes back to the point that you were just making... In the 1800s, marriage was a business arrangement. Yeah, pretty right. Much. There was some benefit, but if you are coming from a family where you have wealth and you are not necessarily looking to marry to increase wealth or to increase access or whatever, that gives you a lot more flexibility than if you were maybe less wealthy or otherwise in a situation where you needed to be married to be able to support yourself. Yeah. And not only that, but the four sisters, each of them were very accomplished in their respective fields. So this was a classic case of like a power four sister combo. I don't know why I say classic. This doesn't happen that often in history, but there were four sisters and they were very fierce, each in their own respective field. Reminds me of the novel uh, Little Woman, yeah. which is also four sisters. Although some of those sisters were married, actually, all of them, I think, in the end. Never mind. Um, but these four sisters, the Hamilton sisters, never married. Oh, except for the one that died. Oh, yeah, that was sad. Anyway, <laughs> uh, she she was homeschooled because back then, I think for a woman to learn how to read at a young age, you pretty much had to be homeschooled because there wasn't any establishment public schools that would you know, prioritize women in education. And then after that, she found a love for reading and a love for literature and a love for science. She enrolled in the University of Michigan Medical School in 1892, graduating in two years. Wow. Which was that normal for the time? I don't, I don't know. know. Okay. Like for now, definitely not normal. Oh, <laughs> definitely of not normal. Not. But uh, graduating in two years, then completed internships at the Northwestern Hospital for Women and Children in Minneapolis, followed by the New England Hospital. Uh, 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 say the name of the city again Northwestern Hospital for Women and Children in Minneapolis. Nope. <laughs> I, that's how I've always pronounced it. And no one has corrected me until today. Minneapolis. Minneapolis. Oh, come on. That's so close. Minneapolis. <laughs> Minneapolis. No, you're putting an extra N. Mini, Minneapolis. Yes, Minneapolis. <laughs> well, okay. Apparently, that's how you pronounce that word. Now I know. But uh, then she completed her internship at the Northwestern Hospital for Women and Children in Minneapolis, followed by New England Hospital for Women and Children in Roxbury, which I believe is around Boston. No idea. Geography is the only thing I'm worse at than names. Well, we will put that out there. If you want to correct us, they can. But uh, somewhere in the New England area, hence New England Hospital. Um, she later decided that she didn't want to be part of the practicing part of medicine, which is the bedside treating patient part, and uh, change her focus into more research-heavy stuff, which in this case was bacteriology. And then she later studied abroad in Europe, uh, mostly in Germany for a few years. After that, she continued her postgraduate study at Johns Hopkins University Medical School. Woot. She was there during the times of uh, Wilch and Osler and Co. I don't know if you know. Oh, yes. We have numerous buildings in our campus named after these folks Correct. and their <laughs> portraits hanging on the walls in places. Yes. So she was during that first stage of the Johns Hopkins University now institution when Wilch and Osler were still there. But anyway, she she was a woman of immense education and experience during a time when that was very difficult for women. And uh, her biography mentioned several times that she was discriminated against, not surprisingly, in the field of academia. But none of this is public health quite yet. But it's about to get public health real soon. 
Okay. And, you know, listeners, I'm skipping over a lot of details in her biography. She really have an interesting life. Um, if you want to know more, I am not doing a good job covering that part of her life. So definitely look up uh, stuff yourself. I'll put some link in the description. Anyway, but here's the public health pivot. Are you ready? Ready. Let's see whether you can recognize her now. In 1897, she took a job as a professor of pathology at Women's Medical School of Northwestern, University, but more importantly, she became a member of the Hull House in Chicago, which is a settlement house by social reformer Jane Adam and Ellen Gates Starr. Do you know what a settlement house is? Nope. Okay, so a settlement house, I'm probably not doing it justice, but a settlement house is a a very forward-thinking social reform idea where basically you put people of multiple class and backgrounds in the same living space in terms of proximity. And the idea is that by having people of different backgrounds in the same proximity, you can offer uh, support, resources, and just social capital to people who may not otherwise have gotten them should they live in those highly, highly segregated uh, neighborhoods of the city. So sort of early concepts of like mixed income housing. Yeah, okay. yeah, 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 like that. But more so than mixed income, but it was a mixed background trying to get people you know, to mingle with each other instead of having the elites live here, having the middle class workers live here and having the poor live in slums, right? That was the idea. So this kickstarted her epic journey into the field of public health. Yes. And I just wanted to point out, she was born 1986. She moved into the Chicago Hall House, 19, uh, sorry, 1869. And she moved into the Hall House, 1897. Thir- 31. 31 years. No. Uh, wait. Right? Six- 97. Oh, 69. No, no, 29. 29. Right? 69. Yeah, 29. You're right. 97. Yeah, 29. Yeah, 29 years. I got the numbers. Which, again, like I want to highlight, it's very common for people in public health to pivot into public health later in their careers. This was also the case for her. Also, like being 29 back then, like that's pretty late career yes wise. because uh, you know the life expectancy is not what it what it is today yeah we're dealing with the 1800 to early 1900 that was a relatively late pivot career-wise and a point of inspiration again we did this in dr sue baker's episode it's never too late to pursue what you believe in it's never too late to pursue your passion don't think that oh i'm blank age and i can't do what i love no screw that all the pioneers in public health apparently started very late and they made substantial contribution to the field so did Dr. Alice Hamilton. So uh, she lived in the whole house and she soon began noticing that the poor residents of the community are not doing great health wise. Surprise, surprise. Uh, not only are they getting unhealthy, but they're getting unhealthy specifically because of their work. And this got her thinking, like from her study in Europe, particularly in Germany, the concept of industrial medicine was on the rise in Europe and America being America. Such concept was not a thing in America at this time because America are always tardy to the party. Somehow five steps slower than the rest of the developed countries. And she decided that this was a concept that she's going to bring to America. And this is the pioneer part. And in 1908, she published the first article ever on this topic of industrial medicine in America. This is timely, too, because of the Industrial Revolution is being ramped up. Industrial medicine is another word for, drumroll. Occupational health. Correct. She is the pioneering figure of this whole concept, at least in America, of occupational health. Yeah. So once you started talking about industrial medicine, that's when the gears clicked and I realized who you're talking about. I think we've maybe mentioned previously that part of my one of my roles in the 
school is directing the Occupational Injury Epidemiology and Prevention PhD program, which is part of our Education and Research Center and our Department of Environmental Health and Engineering, which is funded by the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health. And so I have heard about Alice Hamilton and I'm I know of her pioneering work. I just forgot that her name was Alice Hamilton. Well, as long as you've heard of her, that's a that's a big uh, important step. And in 1910, Dr. Hamilton became the presumably first, because this is a newly established thing, so I think she's the first, first medical investigator at the Illinois Commission on Occupational Disease, which is the first of its kind in America at that time. So the Illinois Commission of Occupational Disease was the first institution, a serious institution that focused on occupational health. And what followed after was a very long and illustrious is probably the wrong word because she faced many adversity being a woman in this field. But she still kicked major butts. Yeah, she kicked major butts. Yeah. This kickstarted her public health, especially occupational health career. And and it's hard to occupational health is a very strange concept, especially for people who don't know what occupational health is. Maybe, I guess. At least I didn't. I mean, my master's was in occupational environmental health. Yeah, but we are plugged in to this space. Yeah, well, so I, I think essentially, in my perspective, boils down to the expectation that we have a safe and healthy place to work. Which is such a low bar if you think about it. It is, it is really low. But for a very long time, and still sometimes in places both in the U.S. and across the globe, employers extract work and product and time and energy and sometimes safety, health and well-being from their employees. And the expectation is or the expectation that employers have had and sometimes continue to have is I am paying you for a thing. Therefore, you will do whatever is necessary to produce that time. Right. Like essentially I own you very capitalist when you are on the clock. And we know that this is not just an issue for full-time workers who are employed and and workplaces need to be concerned about injuries and safety for workers' comp, but there are day laborers and sometimes undocumented laborers who are potentially exposed to the most dangerous tasks with the least amount of training. But the sort of concept of occupational health is thinking about how can we design workplaces that are safe and healthy and minimize exposures How can we fit the workplace to the worker? So this includes like ergonomics. So rather than trying to make the worker function in a particular space, making the workspace conducive to that worker's physical skills and abilities and size and height and all that kind of stuff. And really thinking about the workplace as a potential source of injury, exposures, those kinds of things that need to be documented carefully and sometimes separately from the other exposures people might have in their lives. Yeah. And it's a concept that makes sense a lot to us now. But back then, this was, and I cannot stress this enough, like truly pioneering work, because back then people just did not care about the workers at all. And uh, it really took some a lot of teeth pulling for her to be like, you know what? Work is a place where people spend a lot of their time. Like uh, a lot of accidents happen at work. And let's give the more obvious example, because when we think about work, uh, privileged people like us, we think of the office. But, you know, like this is there are other types of work, like working in a warehouse, working in a factory, working in like a textile mill, working outdoors uh, in agriculture. Those are the more, I think, obvious 
context by which occupational health is like really, really important. Sure. But even for folks who have office jobs, thinking about air quality, oh yeah, water quality, thinking about exposures to products. Like we had a spring cleanup. We had one this past year, but the year prior, as we were sort of coming back from COVID, we had one. And on my hallway, one of the radiators had leaked while people were away and there was a bunch of stuff on the floor in that office and it got all moldy. And in the office cleanup, they were doing like, you know, whatever whatever one of those junk Holloway companies had come and was hauling stuff away and they ran out of space because there's too much stuff to haul away just from the cleanup. And so somebody put the moldy stuff boxes and all this moldy stuff in the hallway. And Josh and I, my colleague Josh Horowitz, we went into the office for some event and we both were like, are they painting? What does that smell? Like it smells like fresh paint. Like this is terrible. No warning. No no one had told us, hey, by the way, there's moldy out in your hallway. And so for an entire day, we're breathing in this mold until somebody came along to pick it up. And they're like, oh, by the way, yeah, this moldy stuff is out here. Like, <laughs> you know, you might want to close your door. What is the way to So, you know, th- that's sort of an extreme example of being in the workplace. But like, you know, we think about green buildings and how mm-hmm. we are designing things. But as we are using paint and carpet and all these things like off-gassing of those materials into the air can be hazardous also. Asbestos in office buildings. Mm, Yeah, didn't even mention that. But yeah, like this truly became like a really big and serious and important field for for everyone involved. And her work mainly focused on, I like, she's one of those figures in history where her rap sheet is just really, not rap sheet, her list of accomplishments is just very long. Her CV. Her CV is very long, so we're not going to be able to cover everything that she has done and all her accomplishments. But her main work is on industrial exposure in terms of chemicals. And uh, you know that all that lead stuff that we talked about in one episode? That was her. That was her. She did all the lead stuff, and she did that in 1910 and 1920s. How long did it take us to ban lead paint? Um, well, Baltimore, if folks remember back to that episode, go back and check it out. Yeah. Baltimore was actually one of the first cities to ban the use of lead paint, largely, I think, because of the work that she was doing at Johns Hopkins. Yeah, I don't think she stayed at Hopkins, but she was near in the New England's, you know, East Coast area. Well, she I mean, she had connections with folks in Baltimore. She did. Yes, of course. And yeah, but, you know, I'm just saying like she in the 10s and 20s would be like, hey, lead is a really dangerous thing. Maybe we shouldn't plaster it everywhere. That was her. And I'm glad we were able to make a, a reference to that. But her other accomplishments First female Harvard faculty ever as the assistant professor in the new Department of Industrial Medicine, later Occupational Health. She, in this part of her biography, she documented several instances of uh, discrimination. Not surprising, Harvard is not known to be an open and friendly place. I don't know what it is like today, but I'm speaking an objective truth that back then Harvard was very, very stuffy and very, very... um, the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of Johns Hopkins University or the Bloomberg School of Public Health. <laughs> <laughs> Correct. Um, and I'll leave it at that. But it's true. Like She no, faced I, a lot of discrimination. I, know, I, know. I am not lying about this. Um, I know. She's the only woman in the members of the League of Nations Health Committee. She was the first woman to receive the Albert Lasker Public Service Award. And more, 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 more that we're not going to cover because it will take us 10, 20 minutes just to list off our accomplishments. But the big idea is she was a pioneer in occupational health in America. And her work 
fundamentally led to the Occupational Safety and Health Act in 1970, which established, I believe, OSHA. I think so. I mean, it's named after this act, so why wouldn't it? So yeah, so she was a true pioneer, and we can thank her for making our workplaces safer, making sure that workers aren't just treated as an item that the employers owned. And uh, yeah, like she is a pioneer in public health. Yeah, absolutely. And I appreciate you picking this person for our conversation today because I know of her, I knew of her work and just one of my fatal flaws as a human being is being really bad with names. Um, but hopefully this conversation will will solidify in my mind Alice Hamilton. And when folks ask me who are women scientists, I won't be restricted to saying Marie Curie and uh, Rosalind Franklin as my top two. I'll throw yeah. Alice Hamilton in there, among many other amazing women. Of course. And Sue Baker. That was our first episode. Of course. Yeah. Uh, yes. Yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, so we hope you enjoy the second installment in this series. We will definitely be doing more of these as we go on because we need to highlight more awesome people in public health because public health is awesome and everything is public health. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Everything is Public Health. We hope you enjoyed the second installment of the Public Health Figure slash Pioneer series, name pending. And uh, now that you know who is the pioneer of occupational health in this country, Dr. Alice Hamilton. New episodes are released every Thursday on Spotify, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Please give us a rating and a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. It helps the show immensely. Send us questions or comments to everythingispublichealth at gmail.com. Reach out if you think we've missed an important perspective or suggest a future episode topic. Follow us on Instagram and Mastodon at everythingispublichealth. We are on Twitter at everythingisph. You can find me on Twitter at Dr. Krafasi. More information regarding this episode can be found in the show notes below. Listeners, we have a Patreon page that is also our website. Visit the site for all major updates and bonus material. If you want to support the show directly, you can support us on our Patreon page as well. I'm also posting frequently on Mastodon. And remember, everything is public health. Everything is public health. <laughs>